Hello, and welcome to Faith So Simple, the podcast that explores the Christian faith, transforming the difficult, complex, and downright nerdy into simple, straightforward terms that any average Joe can follow. I'm your host, Joe Staines, and if you're like me, an average Joe, then I invite you to come along as we dive into scripture, history, theology, and many other disciplines to discover the truth of God's Word. Welcome to Episode 3 of Faith So Simple. I'm so excited you've joined us today. If this is your first time listening, no matter where or how life finds you, I hope you feel welcome, encouraged, and learn something new. If you're a subscriber, welcome back! We have an exciting new nerd word this week, and in this episode, we continue our exploration of the foundations of the Christian worldview by looking at what we can discover because of the fact that sin exists. If you haven't heard episode two, then I encourage you to go back and have a listen to that one first. But otherwise, let's jump right in. It's time for a new nerd word! I feel like it needs a... um... A jingle. Yeah, it does. It needs like a little jingle or... Da, 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 da. <laughs> not words. Maybe that's not it. I don't know. That's not it. But we'll not get, it. Maybe we'll, we'll work on it. Are you ready? Absolutely. You've been reading up, studying, not, prepped. Not one page of study done. Go on then. Hit me with it. This week's nerd word is... Dun, dun, Ontology. Well, I know it's got the logy bit in it, so I know that bit. Okay, ontology. So ont, ont. What's ont? The study of ants. <laughs> ont. Ontology. I don't know, but it sounds medical. Hmm. I'm going into ontology. It does sound medical <laughs> when you say that. <laughs> oh, good. I'm going to say it's the study of... Oh, I really want to get it. It's here You've somewhere. It. It's, it's in the brain. It's the study of... How? You can do it. I don't know. Uh, the study of how people think. No. Oh, the disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> if you could see. It's like they're like, yes, she's going to get it. No, she's absolutely not. All right, go on then. Yeah. Tell me what it is. Not terribly far away from the, the right thought process. But, <laughs> but ultimately wrong. But ultimately wrong. So the ontology is the study of... Words. Mm, close. The study of truth, like the truth of something. Oh, I so never the existence. That. It's really kind of a philosophical study on the nature of being and reality. Okay. Um, Elaborate, Joe. So basically, ontos that is Greek. So ontos is that word you're looking for. Uh, okay. So you, you got the ology part, right? Yes. That's the study of. And ontos is just being, like existence. Okay. So a, a simpler way to put it would be just studying whether or not something actually exists. Oh, okay. Yeah. Fine. So. Fine. Uh, Fine. I've got it. That's yeah. it. Done. No <laughs> like, more. Like the classic philosophical example is a chair and how you know a chair exists. You've We're lost not gonna... me again. You reeled me in and you're losing me. <laughs> I'm not going into that. Okay. We're not going to do it. Right. But a lot of classic questions are. Uh, like, is there a God? Do numbers exist? Is there an afterlife? Can there be more than one truth? Do numbers exist? Yeah, yeah. That, that was, I did when I did a Google search. That was what came up. Do numbers exist? Is a classic Who is ontological. Thinking of, who's thinking about that? Philosophers. You, are you thinking about that? Joe? <laughs> Quite frequently. All he does. Do That's they all exist? I do. But you know, we don't really worry about that because we just 
We just I experience said, things, yeah. right? Like you hold a cell phone, you don't think, does the cell phone really exist? I don't know, you but just, I feel like I should be questioning yeah. more things. No, I've never thought about this before. You, but you do, though. <laughs> like you do it naturally. Again, like before, right. you do do it naturally, right? So if I hand you a tray, here's my example. If I hand you a tray. Yep. And I say, carry this tray and go put it in your mother's lap. Okay. How do you know what a lap is and how do you know that a lap exists? So the fact that there's a lap, right? You know what a lap is, right? right? So you know that there, you don't do this. You do it naturally. Okay. So in order for a lap to exist, a person has to, first a person has to exist, right? Okay. Have legs. They have to have legs, right? Here we go. And what else do they have to, what else do they have to be doing? Sitting. Sitting. That's it. It's that simple. So in order for the lap to exist. I'm so excited by this. (laughs) I really am. Okay. Yeah. But yeah. So, I mean, that's, that would be a very brief, natural ontological study of of what something is to exist and what requires for it to exist. So in order for a lap to exist, you need a person with legs and they're sitting. Well, it's like, so in the last episode, we used hermeneutics to talk about sin and everything else. Mm. That was really also an an ontological study on the existence of sin, right? Because we were studying Uh the fact of sin existing itself, right? Just that concept. So that that was a study. Nice. Uh, And we're going to conduct the next step of that in this episode to see... The fact that it exists, just like the lap, right? What what then does the its existence point to? Okay, good. That makes sense. Yeah, you're just obsessed with my mother's lap. (laughs) (laughs) I really have no response to Uh, that. There is a response to that. Hilarious. Hi, mom. If you're listening, (laughs) I'll never be able to look at her again. Ontologically, ontology. Ontology was the is word. not a medical it's department. Not medical. Nope. I'm not going to go and be called in. Correct. Okay. Onto- ontology mm-hmm. is studying the existence of something. That's it. You got it. That's it. Bonus. Nice. Yeah. Good. Sweet. Excellent. Well, Thanks. I'm glad. Yeah. Well done. Oh, I'm glad. I was really able to remember that logy bit. I really mm. like that. Yeah, That's yeah. good. I'm learning, kids. Yeah. <laughs> Woo! Hooray! <laughs> All right, we'll have fun. Goodbye. Okay, well, I hope you enjoyed that new nerd word. Now, as we go into the deeper look, we're going to continue the series of exploring the foundations of Christian belief. But we're going to take a slight pause, and this episode, we're going to look at what naturally follows just from the the plain fact that sin itself exists. So what can we conclude, what can we discover just because sin itself exists? Now, if you happen to miss the last episode, just a quick recap, we discussed the fact that sin entered the world through one man, which was Adam, and has caused a separation between us and God. And as a result, evil and brokenness has entered into the world. And we stopped there. We didn't go much further than that. But it's this separation between us and God and and the existence of sin in how we experience life that causes the tension between what we feel that we think should be and what we actually experience in our lives. So there's a tension there between what we feel of what we think should happen and what we actually experience as things play out as we live day to day. Many Western cultures today are experiencing significant anxieties that surround identity. 
Now, how the questions of identity are being explored is less relevant for this particular discussion than just the simple fact that that is happening, that that exists. Well, if we assume the Bible records and reveals the truth, then the struggle for identity is natural. Humanity was created to live in relation to and communion with God. Here are a few examples. In Genesis 4, verses 5 through 7, God speaks directly to Cain, that's uh, one of the sons of Adam and Eve, and warns him that his anger toward his brother Abel is a form of sin that is crouching at his door. And this warning from God is an expression of his desire for goodness and continued relationship with Cain. He's trying to stop Cain from doing something that would that would further create tension between him and God. In Psalm 86, verse 9, All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. There's no separation between any nation in the fact that we come and glorify his name. In Romans 11, verse 36, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And then in Revelation 21, verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And that's a description of what's yet to come, but of what we are yearning for is that reconnection with God, both physically and spiritually, being in his presence for eternity. Now, when sin entered the scene, humans were torn from that purpose of creation, and that created that rift between us and God. So as a result, an impassable barrier or even a blindness to direct relation with God can create a veil to our identity, to how we view ourselves, to how we expect to interact with each other, how we expect to interact with the natural physical world around us, or how it interacts with us. I like the way that Irenaeus of Lyons, or Lyon, if you want to be French, uh, he was a second century church father. He describes the danger of what it means to be deceived by the sin that, that, that is out there, to, to not see the relationship that God would have with us. And what he says is, error never shows itself in its naked reality in order not to be discovered. On the contrary, it dresses elegantly so that the unwary may be led to believe that it is more truthful than the truth itself. When we choose to pursue our own desires apart from God, it leads to selfishness and brokenness, and then our identities become focused on temporary things that will either at best let us down, or at worst it'll destroy us and those that we love. And that's why without God it becomes very natural to search for a replacement. And that search is natural, so so don't hear me in in saying that that's a bad thing, because that is something we all experience. It's just part of our lives. And everybody, whether whether you're raised in a Christian home or you're not raised in a Christian home, it doesn't matter. You will feel that desire to find purpose. And I think that's built into us uh, by God, by design. And the fact that we all experience it points to a greater truth. Well, my point here is that whether a Christian an atheist, a Muslim, or whether you're American or British or Indian or Moroccan, as we live in this world, we naturally feel wrongness and we try to find rightness. So just like the existence of the lap example in the nerd word that we discussed that revealed that specific truths that there had to be a person with legs and sitting for a lap to exist, the wrongness is the fruit of a world that is broken by sin. And that leads us to this discovery of the existence of other truths than beyond sin. 
Here are some quick thoughts. The fact that we can identify sin, evil, and what I called wrongness means that there must be some standard of righteousness and goodness that we inherently know or feel. Otherwise, right and wrong would be indistinguishable. But because the difference can be recognized, this means there must be a standard. Which begs the question then, where did that standard come from? And who established it, if anybody? Well, if the answer is nowhere and no one, well, then we're no better off than when we started, as it all depends then on individual viewpoint, which is just as good as saying there is no standard at all, which probably would mean that there's no right or wrong. And I, I would struggle to say that this fits how we experience life. I, I don't think I've ever met someone who truly believes that there is no right or wrong within life and how it's experienced. So then if the answer is yes, it points to someone who must have complete knowledge of all that is good, everything, in order to separate from all that is bad. In other words, a perfect being able to perfectly establish a perfect standard. I'll say that again a little bit slower. A perfect being able to perfectly establish a perfect standard. And this standard is what establishes moral law. So the perfect being becomes the lawgiver. The lawgiver by nature is the only one who can provide an accurate judgment between the two. In order to correct the wrong, judgment must be declared and action taken to eliminate it. Now, I know that's a bit complicated, and I'm going to try to pull this apart. I'm going to try to simplify it for you, and I'm going to take a look at how Scripture shapes the Christian worldview on this issue and how it explains how, how I got to those steps, and we'll revisit it at the end. From the very beginning, an expectation of obedience to God's morality is established in the garden when Adam and Eve are told not to eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Well, what's bad about knowing good and evil? Well, in the opening verses of creation, with each created thing, God saw that it was good. Well, since God has no evil in him at all, then what he creates must by nature be good. He cannot create anything but something good because he in himself is only good. If you hear the argument or suppose that maybe that's wrong, maybe he can create evil, then when God calls his creation good, we have a problem here. He's either oblivious to the evil that he's created or he's lying. Either option would mean that God is flawed and so he's not really God after all or at least not a God that we'd want to follow and worship. But thankfully, God is God, and God is good. So what he made was good. And when he made man, he saw that what he had made, and he said again that it was good. Now, here it gets a little bit sticky. Although man is good, man is created. Remember, we have been created. We are not the creator. So as long as we remain obedient and living within God's design, evil is not even a consideration. The knowledge of good and evil is unnecessary. Once we become aware of that knowledge, well, now we place ourselves in the position of judge, which is to take God's place. We have removed God from his seat of authority and tried to replace him. So that's where it gets sticky, because we are not and never have been the standard for goodness. So remember, God, who is all good, just by his being, is the standard for goodness. But he's the creator, and we're the created. So we aren't meant to be that standard. Even if he made us good, we aren't the standard because he's the standard. So when we try to replace him, 
Instead of relying on the freedom of God's knowledge, we begin to operate on our feelings, which leads to all forms of corruption, as our feelings can change as quickly as the wind. We rely on our own knowledge at that point and our own experiences, but we just don't have the capacity to take it all in and and react in the way that God does because we're not God. Well, if we fast forward a little bit and take a look at Noah, we find that instead of a loving relationship with God and with each other, the earth was filled with violence because all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And this violence and corruption is what grieves God's heart to the point of regretting that he created humanity in the first place and the sin and darkness could not continue. Skip ahead to Moses. Moses provides the law as we know it. When you hear the law, you think of the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments. And that's probably what most of us are familiar with. The Ten Commandments is the foundation of the law that is then drawn out into more detail in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Now, as we work through the Old Testament, it becomes clear that the law reveals sin in man, and that's also revealed in the nation of Israel, and that a failure to live by the law demands justice. And justice is found either through punishment or an attempt to cover what was wrong through animal sacrifice. If we go back to Genesis very briefly, before God expels man from the garden, he covers their nakedness with the skins of animals. Now, many times, nakedness in the Bible is symbolic of shame, guilt, humiliation, and punishment, results of bad behavior. Not always, but many, many times. But in order for them to have clothes of animal skins, animals had to be sacrificed to create them. The sin of Adam and Eve required then a blood price to cover their disobedience. And God provided the sacrifice for Adam and Eve in order to cover their sins. The animal skins also point to the sacrificial system that we see later in the Mosaic Law that we just mentioned a second ago. And God makes it very clear that sin offerings require blood to atone for the transgression or the broken law. But again, God sets the boundaries and resides as both lawgiver and judge over lawbreakers. And the Bible is consistent with this theme. There are many verses that display this idea of God setting boundaries and being the judge. A lot of the Psalms mention that, such as Psalm 75, 7, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. And we see this all the way through to the end of the Bible in Revelation twenty twelve. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. So it's clear from these examples throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament that we are sinful in nature, and the sin demands a judgment. The Old Testament law deals with this through animal sacrifice. However, the problem with animal sacrifice is that it's a temporary solution to a permanent problem. We know this because the nation of Israel had to conduct sacrifices every single day of every single year. And it was a ritual that had to constantly be performed in order to try to purify God's people so that they could continue to be in his presence, to be his people, to receive his blessings. But the animal sacrifice, because it had to be done again and again and again, It couldn't abolish the sin. It could only cover it. And that's where Jesus comes in. You see, only a perfect life lived perfectly by the perfect being could provide a sacrifice that could not just cover the sin, 
but could atone for and abolish the sin within us completely. I'm going to quickly recap, and hopefully it will be more clear now. If you remember, when I went through that those step-by-step process of what we can learn from the fact of sin. So the existence of sin and its presence reveals the following. There is a perfect, righteous example of good that reveals sin and evil. God is that example whose very existence sets the standard and establishes moral law. This makes God the lawgiver, which sets him as judge over all creation. And as judge, God separates the good from the bad so that his goodness will prevail over evil. Thanks for sticking with me through some of those mental gymnastics, but you've just completed between the last episode and this episode an ontological study on the existence of sin, which points to the existence of a God who must be, by very nature of being, fully good, that reveals his nature and our relationship to him in our current state. Well, so far, we've explored the scriptural basis for sin, which points to a moral law that ultimately points to a lawgiver and a judge. But it's worth asking ourselves the question, does that match our personal experience as we live day to day? Well, this is worth asking because modern culture has bred a mindset that whatever feelings that you hold, you know, whatever you deem to be true, whatever religion or worldview you adhere to, as long as it doesn't hurt someone else, is true. And it's okay for it to be true. But this doesn't really stand up to logic or experience. What I mean is that if you claim that truth is relative to the individual, that everything is true, then my response is going to be that nothing is true. And now we're forced with a question. Who's right? Both statements cannot be true. So if the statement that everything is true is a false statement, that's easy. But if the statement that everything is true is, in fact, a true statement, then my response of nothing is true is also true which means that both the original statement and my own proved to be false. Well, Neil Shenvey, the author of Why Believe? A Reasoned Approach to Christianity, presents three questions when considering a worldview. What does the worldview explain? Do the beliefs fit together, or are they logically contradictory? And is it livable? Can it be lived out in practice, or is it just a theory that must be thrown out as soon as it hits the real world? Well, both Neil and I would urge that the Christian worldview is the only one that fits the series of questions and actually matches the experience of life as we live it day to day. So if the Bible presents an accurate worldview, when the moral law is broken, we should have a noticeable reaction to the wrong or the unjust or broken behavior that either we witness, we personally experience, or unfortunately, we commit. Well, starting with the last example, whenever we feel shame or guilt or embarrassment, it's usually because we've done something that we felt we shouldn't have done. So that makes sense. That fits within that construct. But if we move beyond our own personal feelings, we can also observe this in a broader cultural context, both in uh, behaviors and reactions. Let's take a look at a few examples. It's a universal experience of life that situations can not only be difficult, but they become so broken that circumstances quickly shift beyond our control, many times to the point of despair. And when faced with such hardship, almost without fail, people, even if they are self-proclaimed atheists, begin to search for or turn to something, whether it's God or something else that's greater than themselves. And it's amazing how prevalent, how common this theme is in art and culture and also in day-to-day experience. For instance, in the TV show The X-Files, which was very popular back in the 90s, In uh, the third season, there was an episode, episode number 11, called Revelations, 
Mulder and Scully are investigating several unexplained murders of both adults and children who have reportedly exhibited stigmata, which is simply a spontaneous bleeding of the hands, feet, forehead, or side that match the locations of the injuries that Jesus suffered on the cross. But by the end of the episode, Scully's strongly held belief that science can explain everything has been significantly shaken, and her dormant faith is awakened. So she goes to speak with a Catholic priest, and while she's speaking with him, she expresses her fear, and he asks why. And her response forms the closing words just before the credits roll, and these are the last words spoken in the episode. And she says, I'm afraid that God is speaking, but no one is listening. It's a haunting ending that doesn't provide any resolution. And the writer's uncertainty or portrayal of uncertainty of both God's existence and the consequences of ignoring that existence indicate that that could be catastrophic. On Netflix, there's a show called Titans, and this is based on DC Comics, and it's the next generation of superheroes, so after Batman and Superman and and all those. So it's the original Robin, uh, Dick Grayson is now Nightwing, there's a character named Beast Boy and Raven and others. Well, the new season, season four, is steeped in magic, demon worship, and interdimensional travel of sorts. Of course, it's entertaining, right? We love superheroes. I love superheroes. People who are more than human that sacrifice everything that they are in order to save us from evil and harm, a lot of times at deep personal cost. But without giving any of the plot away, what's fascinating is that at one point in this season, despite all the intelligence and superpowers and and good magic, quote-unquote, the heroes still reach a point that is entirely beyond their control and inability to save anyone or to fix the situation. And while the tension is building, one character who has magical powers wanders off into the background by herself. And eventually that's noticed, and one of the other characters asks what she's, what she's doing in the corner. And as she turns around, her response is simply to say, I'm praying. And it begs the question, to whom is she praying? Because God is never invoked in the show, and yet the characters and ultimately the writers have written the situation into a corner where there are no options left to turn to. We see this socially as well. So several years ago, I came across this story about religious ceremony that took place near the riverbank within a nearby community. Now, I I can't recall all of the details of which deity was being venerated uh, or, or what all the elements of the ceremony involved. But part of the ceremony involved a food sacrifice. So that meant tossing fruits and vegetables into the river. And uh, this was followed up at the end by a consultation. I think it was chicken bones or dice or something like that, which were tossed on the ground. And the question was asked to a, a supernatural being, will this be a bountiful year? And this may sound kind of silly, but there were quite a few people in attendance here. And astoundingly, after the first toss, the priestess kind of grunted, uh, disapprovingly, and then tossed the the bones again. And then uh, she kind of tutted and and tossed the bones again. And this, repeating the question each time. And this continued for several rounds until about the fifth or sixth time she finally stands up lifting her arms in the air, declaring that indeed this would be a bountiful year the gods have spoken. Well, the point isn't that the ritual only concluded once the desired result was achieved, but more so that there were many people in attendance here and they were seeking answers to situations that were totally out of their control, looking for hope and promise in a world that often feels chaotic and ruined. Well, that's why the world puts time and energy into things such as horoscopes and palm readers and tarot cards and myriads of religious beliefs. You see, there's a yearning built into the fabric of our being to hope for something or someone that's greater than us that can guide the unpredictable 
and tame the uncontrollable. And that's my point. Though we love fantastic stories of superheroes and good overcoming evil, the plain truth is that we already have someone more reliable than a superhero. Superheroes have to save the world over and over, but we have a savior that has already overcome the world, breaking the bondage of sin once for all. And there's no need for a repeat, no need for a new savior for modern times. Jesus is the one and only, the great I am, the one true living God. Well, if you spend some time observing how people and organizations and creative arts shed light on our human nature, you will quickly start to see your own examples of how the simple truth of our brokenness and need for a savior displays itself. And I don't want you to hear me criticizing the people in the previous examples because they were searching for an answer, because that's natural. That's built into us to do that searching. And to conduct the search, I I would say, is commendable. But I do criticize the solutions because these are people in need. And these solutions do not bring the freedom and peace that is only found in the one true living God. The one who simultaneously exacts the justice that we demand while showing the grace and mercy, not that we deserve, but that we ultimately all need. You've been listening to Faith So Simple. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I hope you were blessed by today's discussion and learned something new that you can share with someone else. All music was written, performed, and recorded by me, your host, Joe Staines. If you have any questions about today's content or any other episode, please reach out to me at faithsosimple at gmail.com, and I'll do my best to get back to you, or I might even include your question in a future episode. And if you have a moment, why not help me out by leaving a review following the show, sharing it with a friend, or all of the above. Once again, thank you for listening. This is your host, Joe Staines, signing off. God bless, and we'll see you next time.